Welcome back to the Strategy Inside Everything. I have the privilege, the honor, the excitement to present uh, today's guest is someone that uh, I got to know via Twitter, but uh, have gotten to spend a lot of time with over the past, I don't know, how many, how much time, Mark? Six months have we been uh, spending a little bit more phone time and uh, hanging out together? Oh, yeah, it's been a good six-month dating period. (laughs) I guess it did kind of sound like that, but I'm okay. I'm comfortable with my masculinity. I'm good with it. Um, But today's guest, a lot of you guys know from all the uh, writing he does, from the the talks he gives, from the training that he employs, um, and through his company uh, that he founded called Mighty Jungle. This is Mark Pollard. Say hello, Mark. What's up? Hey, I'm really oh, glad yeah. we finally got to do this. Uh, I don't know if you, you probably would not know this exactly, but when I started this show, you, I think you were one of the first few guests that I reached out to. Um, and, uh, you, you put me off and you were waiting for the right topic. So I'm glad that we finally got on the same page for a topic here. Well, yeah, I mean, the strategy inside everything, that's a, it's a big call, isn't it? So I was like, uh, what am I into? Clash Royale, chess. Uh, I do a lot of parenting stuff. I was like, nah, I'm not sure if any of these would actually make a podcast. <laughs> that's the beautiful thing about podcasts. I, actually, any one of those would be a good one. So uh, that's why I, I was like, no, no, anything will work, Mark. You're, because you're interesting, what you're interested in will work. <laughs> that's very kind of you. Yeah, well, thanks, buddy. Um, <laughs> You guys, you guys should know Mark is actually a hilarious guy, and I think you can get it from his. Uh, if you just look at his Twitter, you'll get the cheeky nature of his writing. Um, mostly, Mark, and correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of times, you're trying to provoke. You, you use humor and cheek to kind of provoke people and get them to feel just uncomfortable enough to have a thought they haven't had before. That's that's how I interpret it. I think that's a fair interpretation. I mean, when I when I used to blog uh i can't even remember when i started it must be 11 or 12 years ago now it's at least 10 probably 2008 before then i didn't want to be that guy writing about the industry and i was doing more of the hip-hop stuff and as i started to write that was relatively early in the blog days relatively early and you know people would sort of write journals and then publish them and hope people would read them but unless you're well known no one really cares about your day it's still it's still a worthwhile writing effort and i would notice that on one hand on on the other hand i would notice people being very very theoretical and businessy in the way that they wrote and i was like nah, that's not interesting either so i thought you know i wanted to write to be read and i know you haven't asked me a question like a, a big question there's a few words here but i wanted to write to be read and i wanted to be provocatively useful i wanted to provoke but in a way that was also useful because otherwise you're just provoking for the sake of it. And, you know, that's that's a bit bit of a party trick and it's not that hard to do. The, the challenge, especially with people who think for a living, is like, hey, I'm going to provoke you, but here are two or three things that might change your day. And so it's the same, it's the same thing on, uh, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Well, it's always directional, though. I mean, it's not always obvious to me right away, but you're trying to get people to you know, into a particular corner or against a certain feeling that are you, are you conceptualizing that or is it just, Oh, here's an interesting thought. Let me see what, how, what kind of reaction I get. Well, I think after a while you don't necessarily, like, even though I can explain what I do and I can, I sometimes help people, I help people write and help them do something similar. I, I do try to jam people a bit. 
And I mean, that's what advertising is supposed to do to a degree. There's just different types of emotions around that. And it's, it's, you know, I talk about like, I want to poke someone in the brain and it can get misread, especially like if you don't know I'm Australian, for example, or if you haven't met Australians and, or you haven't met a cheeky Australian, and that is a definite, definite type of Australian, then, and I'm just writing something, then you might go, well, who's this guy? Like, what, what's all that about? I mean, most people might think that anyway. But when you sort of understand that it's coming from some kind of character, um, which it totally is, because the rest of the time I can be, I can be very verbose in this interaction and then I can be silent for a day or two. Uh, but yeah, I'm trying to jam. I'm trying to jar people, trying to get them to think differently about something. And I do look into the things that make me angry and that excite me. And so a lot of the stuff when I'm writing about the industry or strategy, it's because I might've had a conversation with someone who has just gotten shat on in their company. And I'm like, that's just not good enough. Why does this still happen? I've heard hundreds of these stories. Therefore, boom, it'll just come out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like you're always gunning for um, a, a discussion. You're trying to build up to a greater discussion to elevate something or to, to shine a light on a topic and get people to really uh, respond in a thoughtful way by asking a question that provokes thought, not just provocative for the sake of provoking, which is a lot of what uh, social media and, and media in general is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to disappear into a robotic life. Uh, I don't think my brain is capable of that. And that leads to some challenges, right, as, as you would know. But the roboticness in a, what's supposed to be, quote, unquote, a creative industry, that's not sanity. It's, it's a lie. And no, it's and it's bad for it's bad for the work and it's bad for your uh, uh, mental state to be to get into that rote uh, copy paste repeat methodology of doing this job is is not a, a healthy place to be. It's not healthy, and and then if especially if you work in a in an expensive high stakes city like New York, you might be working in a whether or not you're working in an independent agency or not, uh, you might be working in a in a corporate agency, and there's this tension in most places where you're supposed to be creative and that means you're supposed to be mischievous and rebellious but you've got to be really obedient got to get your timesheets done don't give don't don't <laughs> don't talk back make sure you send up that follow-up email have you got the agenda ready it's a it's a complete yeah. dissonance you know but it doesn't make any sense. but the thing is the people who are senior in it they can't really point it out in public and that's what i find interesting because now that i'm out on my own you know, I can I can say stuff because it's I find it's deeply true, and I'm also happy to be wrong. To me, it's not even about being right or wrong. It's just here's a thing. What do you think? And it's interesting to see how people interact with it when I know they can't really be on record agreeing with it, but you see the little likes pop up or a little retweet pop up, and that's that's been interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting signal. So, this is a lot of, of context actually uh, to to set up a post that you shared. And uh, again, I, I reference a tweet that you, uh, that you posted, but I think you may have written this in longer form somewhere else, but it was, um, it was about ways to cope with depression. Um, and it was basically, I'm paraphrasing it, but it was basically like, hey, if you're in a funk right now, if you find yourself in the midst of a depression, here's some very easy things to kickstart your way to moving forward. Uh, and it was, you know, it was things like, and you'll probably remember some of these more than I do, but the one I wrote that stuck with me was, um, I think you had exercise, take a walk, uh, write, you know, just sit down and write. And to me, 
when I read it, I just thought, oh, that's a very positive thing. And uh, you and I have talked a lot about um, emotion and depression and and things we both do to kind of keep our brains sharp and to keep ourselves uh, in the right frame of mind. Um, I was interested in kind of how you got to that list because I thought most of the things on there were useful. There wasn't anything objectionable. And then what kind of feedback did you get about it's, that? It's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've, I've brought it up just so I can be accurate. And what's interesting is, first of all, this is two months ago, and it was the start of December. Uh, I wrote a blog post a long time ago about dealing with depression at Christmas. Uh, I, I went through some pretty dark Christmases. And the thing is, a lot of people do because whether or not you celebrate Christmas in a secular way or a religious way, it's the end of the year. You look back at your year. When you look back at your year, sometimes you look back at your whole life. You think about the people who've come and gone in your life. You think about the year you want in the future. And so it can be very, and you've got, you might have family visiting. You might have a lot more stress in the family. You're spending money that you maybe shouldn't, and and so on and so forth, right? It's all pretty well researched. Uh, And what I was trying to do is just express a few points about what I'd read over the years. And I I often do forget the sources of the research because I'll just binge on videos or books or academic papers and then go, oh, that's interesting. I'll try that. That makes sense. So I'm going to read you the list. But also what's, what's even more interesting is the past two months, I have totally binged on so much stuff on depression and psychology, whether it's looking at Carl Jung, whether it's listening to, and he's, I don't even like introducing this guy as controversial, but he is uh, Jordan B. Peterson. I spent tens of hours with with him and Carl Jung and Alan Watts and Joe Rogan and you know it's mostly male voices I know uh, and you know some yoga podcasts and looking at, at just listening to the science around depression um, and what I've learned in the past two months brings some of these points which I've just borrowed from other people into even a sharper focus so. The thing that you're referencing is is just this post that says, you know, around now depression kicks in for many. Try these things. It's intermittent fasting, minimal dairy, gluten, sugar, move like your life depends on it, spend time with people who excite you, reach through sad memories for good memories, know you aren't alone. We've got you. Mm-hmm. So that was the actual post. So my memory is terrible, but I did remember it, which is amazing. For two months, for the lifespan of a tweet, I I did remember the existence of the post, but I think it's funny that I took away, um, and I'll share the actual post in the show notes here, but uh, it's funny that I took away things that applied to me that I was like, oh yeah, exercise. I do feel better when I walk around. Oh, intermittent fasting. That makes sense. Reduce sugar. Like the things that I do, I, those are the things I remembered, but, I, but that's what people naturally gravitate to is... Um, these are the tools that will work for me and other tools may work for other people. But your, your point on holiday depression is, is well taken and I'll add some documentation there as well in the notes. Definitely, definitely. And we can go deeper into these topics. What I've found very interesting over the years is when I've, when I've talked about mental health, but also issues of uh, masculinity or the idea of masculinity, which is so controversial. A lot of people roll your eye, roll their eyes, especially in New York. I find it's, it's almost a taboo topic to be to use the word man or men or masculinity, and I think that's dangerous. Uh, but what is interesting is when I've shared these topics, whether people interact with them, whether they interact with them in public, and how the whether it's an article, blog post, or a tweet gets shared. So often, what I've found 
is, you know, unless I'm using the trigger word strategy, there might not be that much interaction. This one got a lot of interaction. And, but I, whereas I, I didn't really expect it because often people with a depression post, <laughs> it's like they, they, they try to duck it. It's like, here's a ball coming at my head, duck it. Whoop, didn't happen. Right. Uh, and then I also posted this on LinkedIn and, and caught some flack for it. So yeah, that was speak, also surprising. Yeah, you, you were telling me about that. Tell, so the reaction you got on one platform versus the reaction you got on another one. Go, can you go into that a little bit? This is, I, that just blows my mind. Yeah, it's, look, LinkedIn, you can pick up more strangers, I think, and, and more strangers who don't know where you're coming from. I know that's true on Twitter as well, but I found it more so on LinkedIn. Um, there were a few people who were trying to suggest that I was being irresponsible and that I lacked empathy. And that was really surprising. It was almost the idea that unless I was a doctor, that you shouldn't just, you just shouldn't talk about it because you don't understand my experience. And I find that a little that kind of makes me angry, just just a little angry, because I don't think that's cool. I do think there needs to there need to be more voices from people who've got something to lose about these ideas. Well, and especially I'm not doing when it. you're when you're saying something that I don't know what negative could be taken away from it, except someone projecting their own uh, identity on it and saying, "Well, I have my own thing going on. Don't preach to me." But you know, if I if I read the list of what you shared, it's not it's a hundred percent constructive and hopeful. That's like, Hey, we're going to get through this together. Here's some things that work. Small yeah. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of science behind this. And obviously we aren't scientists, but there's, there's a lot of new science behind this stuff. Yeah. But I, but I also think that's just the sign of the times where, especially as we get older, we, we often become more and more fixed in our ideas. And then if we see a, a trigger word or phrase or an idea, all we do is repeat the thing we've already thought in public or at least to ourselves and then sometimes out loud. And I think, we, you know, it's useful if you want to stay a little bit open-minded uh, to try to catch yourself before you do it. I'm sure we all do it. But that was the behavior that I saw because it, it wasn't an interaction where people were trying to understand more. It was simply you used a trigger word, you don't understand me, you shouldn't even talk about this go see a doctor. And I'm like, well, if you're just saying go see a doctor, just say go see a doctor. That's fine. <laughs> That's right. totally a valid thing to do. <laughs> There's probably nothing wrong with me going and seeing a doctor. Not a bad tip. I know. And, and so some of the kind of back and forth definitely felt like, you know, that dark rumination that can go on with, in some of our heads, but it was in public. And it was, it was surprising. It felt like the least scandalous thing I'd tried to do that year. And I think it was one of the few times where someone's really tried to not, almost take me down. It was funny. Almost, yeah, that's why I wanted to give the context about your uh, provocative nature. Oh. This is not that. That that's what blew my mind. No. That, you're right. This is one of the safer, uh, outwardly kind. Like, hey, there's no malice here. I'm not. There's no mischief. Um, hey, can I ask you a question about the names you listed? You, you listed Joe Rogan, like right mm. at, in that foursome of Watts and Young and Peterson. Um, do you really do you regard Rogan as a as a helpful as it relates to depression and, and mental state? Uh, well, I just listened to his podcast with Johan Hari, who wrote a book. I think it was called Lost. I think it is called Lost Connections. So I'm, I came late to Joe Rogan. I mean, I, I watched the UFC in the 1990s and, you know, was familiar with him then and then 
had a friend in Australia, Tom Donald, like for a few years going, hey, you should check this guy out on his podcast. And first of all, after I did, so I did radio for a long time and I kind of just burnt out with a lot of everything. I was like, oh, I don't know about podcasts. Most of them seem pretty hokey. And then Joe Rogan, oh, the guy from UFC, I don't know, I don't know. And then I really came across him about a year and a half ago when I was going through, uh, I was definitely in a down period and I have these down periods. And uh, someone had mentioned ayahuasca to me. And so I started to try to f- discover ayahuasca and try to research it. And that led me to trying to understand DMT. And when I was a teenager, I said to myself, I was never going to do anything addictive or hallucinogenic. Uh. And so I never, I've never smoked a cigarette and I never wanted to do anything that would completely mess with my mind. Obviously, caffeine and alcohol are probably addictive. So, you know, anyway, I tried <laughs> to set some kind of moral standard. And then, you know, it was really through that kind of research that I stumbled upon, or re- kind of stumbled upon him and his podcast and the documentary he'd done about DMT. That led me more and more into people adjacent to or close to Alan Watts. That led me to um, like researching MAPS, MAPS, which is an organization in Colorado, I believe, that funds psychedelic research. That led right. me to more and more to places like Ram Das and Terence McKenna and all the talk about psilocybin. And I haven't done any of this stuff. I'm totally open to it. I haven't done it. I, I want to do it responsibly. And so the point is that that helped me see Joe Rogan a little bit differently. You know, I don't listen to a lot of his stuff when it's just interviewing comedians, despite the fact that I gouge on stand-up comedy. But when right. he when he has people that are a little, you know, more psychology uh, psychologists or physicists or neuroscientists, etc. Uh, I think it's. I think he is an important uh, delivery mechanism for some of these ideas. I really do. Yeah, he's definitely. Uh, he's he's open minded. He's very thoughtful in the way he considers things, uh, and he has a he has a point of view, but he's willing to receive a message that's counter to to what I would pro- what I would project on him as his point of view. Sometimes he surprises me when he when he. Uh, kind of hear something and has a different reaction than I'd expect. Yeah, well, I think he, and it's interesting because, you know, I'm, I've been in America for seven years. So someone like Joe Rogan from the outside does seem like a, you know, a pretty alpha bro frat boy kind of guy. And I don't think he's necessarily like that. He probably is parts of that, but I don't, he's definitely not only that. And I think he identifies as a liberal, but also in this sort of free American way that I didn't grow up thinking about. You know, the, the idea of the individual and responsibility, individual responsibility, I think is part of how he, what he believes. And, you know, in Australia, we didn't really grow up with the nuance around political ideology that exists in America. And so I, I find people like him, Sam Harris, um, uh, who else is there? There's a few other people that they're exposing me not just to new ideas, but how Americans think about these ideas. So I get, mm-hmm. I get like a double angle into some of these things that's that's interesting and a little bit terrifying if i if i'm honest (laughs) that there's an american angle on it versus a a human angle but i know that there is um yeah we i mean we can we can go into it i know that could be that could be a different (laughs) let's let's not right now um let's not uh today's not a day for it um i want to go back and talk about the list that you provided in that um Two of the things have to do with food. Um, one of them does, does have to do with exercise, move like your life depends on it. One is about spending time with people who excite you. 
Uh, and then the other one was really mental, you know, reach through sad memories for good and know that you're not alone. Uh, where do you, if this is you and you're working your way through this list, is it a combination of these things? Can any one of these things offset one of the other things for you? And I know you can only speak for yourself. We're not, neither of us are doctors or qualified to talk um, about this or prescribe anything for anybody else. But how do you approach this when you get, I get into these down periods too. And I, I try to figure out, you know, the, or I'm going to shake up the order because something's just not clicking for me today. I better figure out, let me try to do something different. Yeah. Well, so if I channel some of the things I've listened to in the past two months and the, there are tens and tens of hours of things I've, I've read and listened to, and I'll do my best to actually cite the source so we can follow up with it. Uh, but a lot of the times it's just the idea stuck with me more than where it came from. So apologies for not being the, the researcher, the academic. Um, I think, so I'll tell you why that some of these things are interesting. Um, intermittent fasting, so much science about it, what it helps. So that's basically the idea of uh, eating within a certain time period and, and, and not eating out of that time period. Right. And I've been doing it for about a year now. I played with it years ago, especially on long flights. I might fast for 24 hours. Um, you know, it's interesting because most cultures have some kind of fasting or most old cultures have some kind of fasting uh, ritual in them. And there's some old quotes that get used in a lot of the TED Talks, which I will completely ruin, which are that, uh, oh God, what is, <laughs> something like a third, of the food, a third of your food is for you and two thirds is for your doctor. It's something like that, right? And, and this is oh, a couple of thousand years ago. So they knew this back then. You know, I, I had, I've had friends... Uh, had a dear friend get uh, get breast cancer, and she mentioned that in in Asia, uh, breast cancer is, I think, seen as a disease of the rich. Uh, and so, this, you know, the science around intermittent fasting is about trying to reduce the amount that your insulin spikes. Uh, it helps, I believe, clean out your your gut, your microbiome, because we have lots and lots of bacteria down there, and the gut-brain connection, there's new science from the past few years that is, is showing it more and more and more that your, your brain... Yeah, I've been, re I've been reading that as well. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff's out there in the pop culture now, which is great. Uh, and, you know, there was something also about at the start of last year when I started doing it that... And Jordan B. Peterson talks about this, and I know saying his name will trigger people who are familiar with him and, and who don't really like him. So, just let me allow, just allow me the the space to talk about the issues there. But he he talks about like, well, first of all, he talks about set a really difficult take, accept a really difficult challenge. You know, that's what life's about. Take responsibility. He talks about this sort of stuff, but also within that, then set small goals. And what I found when I started to do this, and I would go for these long walks uh, around Central Park is just getting through a day i was like oh that was good you know oh i got to i got to midday i got to noon without eating that's great felt good you know it's probably releasing something in the brain some chemical in the brain that's like hey well done man and so there was something about a little loop that i was starting to form a positive loop just by doing that let alone the other benefits that as far as i understand them right but it was there a small measure of achievement yeah. in making it to that time yeah. you know uh but I don't know if it was, it must have been right around the time you posted this. We were talking about, you were inquiring, looking for people to talk to you about depression in, in advertising. Uh, and uh, I don't know where you ever got with that, with that, it, those interviews that you were doing. But um, I had come up with a theory in just reading some of the responses that were public. 
that it is probably a lot for me, it's triggered by, um, I want to set goals, but I'm totally out of control of deadlines and, you know, timelines and projects that I can put tons and tons of energy in can just disappear because a client leaves or a budget gets squashed or they get a new priority. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot to tied, and again, just for me, for setting goals uh, and, you know, trying to really striving to do that. And when I'm out of, when I'm not in the driver's seat on some of those goals, those big projects that can sometimes just be like a real, um, uh, a mood killer. Yeah. So Johan Hari in that, in his book, I think it's less connections talking to Joe Rogan talks exactly about this. He, he cites a lot of the statistics around unhappiness at the workplace and it's high. Uh, you know, in a, in a, and, and again, in a country that boasts about optimism, depression and unhappiness are really, really high. And it's almost like you're not allowed to admit it because it becomes taboo. So one of the reasons is, especially for people who have certain types of jobs, you want meaning in life. And we get that in many ways, having goals, knowing who we are, having an identity, having an identity in a group. Um and having autonomy and, and improving. Now, what you're talking about is not having autonomy. It's you turn up to work and you can't control everything because that's what corporations exist to do. They exist to minimize human uh, people causing problems. And and agencies and creative industries do that too, which is, I think it's deeply ironic, but at the same time, maybe it is required. I'm still, I need to think that through a little bit. But what you're talking about is absolutely going to lead, can, I shouldn't say absolutely, can abs, can lead to feeling not so good because you have no, it reduces your sense of meaning. Yeah, yeah, control. that's probably it. Um, and the other, so the other thing is with depression is there's a few different ways to look at it. One is that there's something wrong with you, that you're broken. Uh, I, I felt down from a very young, like a relatively young age, and it took me until I read this book called Manhood by Stephen Bidolf. And he talks about how a lot of a lot of guys when their parents split because they're not getting a lot of that eye, you know, the eye, a lot of eye contact and touch or time or constructive time that they can develop sad brains. And I was 19 or 20 when I read that. And I was like, oh, well, that, that might explain a lot of stuff. But then is that because of me? Is there something wrong with me? Is it genetic? Is it my brain? Is it serotonin? So that, that's, that's right. sort of one framework that there's something wrong with you. And there's two ways to look at that. One is, therefore, fix yourself. Therefore, the second way, um, you know, sort of more of a supportive, let me help you. But then there's a lot of the original thought is, you know, I've had people say this to me. I've had family members say it to me. It's like, I just don't understand it. I've never felt like that. And, uh, quite, quite <laughs> that's so damaging that's so hurtful well yeah i mean that probably explains some stuff as well uh but then there's this other idea which is that depression is a wake-up call and that regardless of what's going on in your brain because to, to really move through it and it doesn't mean to fix it but to work out how to adjust to it or to minimize it or whatever it is you do need a combination of mind body community goal identity you know, kind of re, restructuring. But I think that's a really, like if people are depressed, they then go, and what I like about the idea that depression is a wake-up call is that it's not forced optimism. It's not telling you to be happy. It's not telling you there's something wrong. It's like, hang on, 
what if what if I'm feeling like this just because I haven't been asking myself the right questions or listening to myself? Okay, interesting. Let's spend a little bit of time going right. through that. Yeah, just as a as a means of uh, self examination and just trying a new way to do that versus making making big assumptions and making big yeah. changes doesn't doesn't have to be that. None of these things you list are are big, and I don't I don't think you need to make big changes to have big impact. No, I agree. I agree, and I think sometimes you have to do this journey. A lot of people have to do the journey by themselves because it's an increasingly isolated society and culture that we live in. Uh, it, it, you know, if, if you have, if you're with someone who feels like this, really do your best to work out how to be patient, loving, and supportive of them. Because a lot of people who go through this, even if they're in long-term relationships, feel very isolated because the other person just won't get it. Yeah, that's it's a real. Um, even culture is isolating, but I think in this situation, people tend to isolate themselves. They don't really want to. I don't know if the the method of communication is always there to say like, "Hey, this is going on." I don't I don't know what to do with it. So it puts people in a real uh, strange spot. Yeah, I agree. Hey, can you speak just a little bit about reach through sad memories for good memories? Um, the idea of it sounds lovely, mm. um, but it sounds like you have a very specific thought in mind. Um, can you talk to that a little? Yeah, that's the, the two examples that come to mind are. Uh, I was with my, I was fortunate enough to be with my grandfather when he passed away and he went into hospital and, you know, when I was a little bit younger, I, I don't know how, I must have been 26 or 7 and, yeah, 26 or 7 and when I was a bit younger, he would go in and out of hospital and I, I wasn't always, I'd always try to get there. Um, the night I proposed actually and was planning to propose, he went in and that was a few years earlier and I sort of sprinted to the hospital and he stabilized and everything was good and I managed to propose in front of the Sydney Opera House sweaty and in bad clothes but we had it was we had a good night and I was, I was 23 at the time so it was all good. Um, but he then went in and, and we started to realize that he probably wasn't going to come out and I, I, I decided, you know what, my initial reaction was I really don't feel comfortable you know, I've not seen death before. I don't know what, you know, old age is a bit foreign. Like, what's all that about? And the, there was an initial reaction to kind of run. And I said to myself, hang on, hang on. If there's one thing you can do is, is to try to be there, right? When, wouldn't that be beautiful? And so I spent, I spent the last yeah. few days with him. And a lot of people go through this. And I spent the last days through him and with him. And I didn't really have a lot of, like, spiritual guidance or training growing up. Uh, and I don't mean that in a religious sense, but just in a... In a uh, ancient, ancient humans were all connected, kind of sense. Uh, and you know, I, mean, I wouldn't. He was, he was knocked <laughs> out. You know, he was, he was knocked out, unconscious, coma, or well, not coma, but knocked out, and uh, in a palliative care situation. And I was riding next to him. It was raining outside in Sydney, and you know, I'd massage his feet sometimes, massage his hands sometimes, sometimes. And then uh, I will never forget when he, I was in the room with my my auntie, uh, and uh, my grandma was, I think, just outside just outside and he, he, we were going to go down and get some food and he opened his eyes. He hadn't opened them in several days. And he's, he, he sat up just a few inches, looked at us both left, right, and then he fell asleep. And I, I just felt myself breathing him into me. So that's, yeah. that's yeah. to me a beautiful memory from what is for many people a very sad situation. And so it's, you scanned that, that whole story to find that, 
that beautiful moment where you were able to make eye contact with them and then remember all the the positive, the touch, and the the time that you were able to yeah, spend. Yeah, and and that's you know, other, I do think there are other societies that deal with death better and talk about it in a more practical or, or, or a spiritual spiritual fashion. But you know, I had to reach that realization, uh, that epiphany of hang on, if you're with him, that's great, and and maybe you can make it spiritual, whatever that means to you. So that's one example. And then an, another example. I mean, my my mum and I have had pretty traumatic. Not tra- well, she's had a lot of stuff happen to her, and we've had a pretty toxic relationship over the years. But about three or four years ago, she came to New York, and you know, she's um, she loves going out. She's seventy five now. She she can't walk that well, but she she does travel a lot, and she does like the couch surfing stuff as a seven you know in her seventies. Yeah, and she'll, crazy. she'll take like a big red dress. You know, she's on a cruise or somewhere and pull out this big red dress and likes to show off and, and perform. Uh, and we'd had a lot of pretty bad moments over the years and one night i just i just had this moment while she was here and i was like you know what we should go out and i'm gonna fuck you up and because she thinks she's this big party girl and you, you might need to to rephrase how what i just said but that's actually what i thought <laughs> so you like challenged but, her <laughs> that's it we're going yeah, out yeah, we're yeah. doing this uh you know it wasn't i don't know how i don't know if i said it to her but in my mind i was like okay fine you th- you know you think you're really hilarious and you like to perform and she has no she doesn't have a lot of filter and says some some you know pretty provocative things at times and so i said okay I'm going to take you, we're going to have drinks, I'm going to take you to stand-up comedy, and then we're going to hang out. We were out till 2 a.m. And, you know, we managed to steer away from all the conversations. And, and we took a photo drunk at 2 a.m., and she was mortified by the rudeness of the stand-up comedy, which I found deeply ironic. And uh, it was just one of those moments that I'm so happy that I did. And it came from that idea of, um, I only came across this idea through yoga, which is about leaning into it, uh, you know, finding your edge and, and kind of leaning into it. I, I'm not quoting... Cheryl Sandberg, right? Uh, but that's an example where I now have that in my head and I'm glad that it happened. Um, so that there, there are examples of that. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, I really like that. I like that story about your, uh, both those stories are great, but the story about your mom cracks me up. Uh, just that you dove on it and said, nope, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go headlong into this together and see where Yeah, see and how both it of those, they're not necessarily reaching through sad memories for good memories. They are creating good memories by actually fighting the, for both of those, they're really fighting the flight instinct. Like, oh, I shouldn't be here. Or, oh, I should, you know, let me just go to my room. Or I'm not comfortable in this hospital right now. It's like, hang on. What if you were really comfortable? What if you really enjoyed it? What would you do? And those it sounds easy. It's easy for me to say that now because the rest of the time I could be com- a complete piece of chaos. But um, I'm glad that those, that, I was, that those two things happened in, in the way they happened. Well, not that, not that my part died, but <laughs> that was, that was <laughs> obviously not. But so much of what strategy is is um, Finding finding the one thing that we want to fix or the one issue that we think we can build work around, build an idea around, build a solution around, and then deciding, okay, do we run headlong into this thing? Do we build a campaign that goes directly at this, or do we run away from it and you know focus on something that just that hides this? It seems to me that you're able to. They say when um, great basketball players are you know really in the zone that the game slows down for them that they're they're everything else around them is moving in slow motion and they're in that kind of matrix world 
it seems to me that you have the wherewithal somehow, at least after the fact, to recall saying, wait, hold on a second. I don't want to be in a hospital. How can I turn this on its head so that I can make it positive or make it a, a useful experience? And I don't, I don't know that everybody is able to do that. Do you, is that something you're conscious of or do you remember it after the fact that, oh, this, is, this must be the logical loop that I went through to get there? No, I, re- I remember it when I'm in it, but it, it often comes from a high emotional state and it's not something I can do every single time. I'm sure everyone's got examples of these times. It's just that I guess the two examples I gave you were quite drastic in some form. But, well, that's what makes them good examples. Yeah, right? and... and, and but it's not, it really, de- a lot of it does depend around who I am. It, a lot of it depends on who I'm around as well. So if I'm, if it's just me and I'm out and about most of the time, I can play with these kinds of decisions, but I still have people who tr- trigger me and situations who trigger me and types of people who trigger me, which is a very, if I'm calling, you know, if I'm saying type of person, I'm aware that that's a shallow way to approach, hum- approach humanity. Uh, but you're right. Like it's, <laughs> Are you really that? Are you that nervous about blowback? I think type of person is okay. Oh uh, yeah, no, no, I'm not nervous I about think. blowback. I just, I just do believe that that's probably a shallow thing to to say in in this part of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. A lot of it's just setting little creative constraints and you know picking up little comments or phrases or even affirmations or, or questions, and then hope, hope, hopefully they stick in your brain and you can get them when you need them. And if you can do that a little bit more than before, then surely that's better than before. You know, I, I have low expectations. Yeah, and any any incremental improvement yep. is an improvement. And there's even, and there's even you know, and does, I think it does connect with the mental health thing. Uh, but the, one of the questions that I started to ask myself a few years ago, four, maybe four or five years ago, is, is what's the best way I can spend my time? You know, and you know what that might, the answer might be, go to a library for three hours or it might be go to a movie or it could be write a thousand words or it could be send up you know all the follow-up emails but the thing is just to ask that question and ask it in a in a kind of kind way and i to me that's trying to jolt the anxiety and the constant rush that i've you know i worked my ass off through school and and through my 20s and 30s but really long hours, I'd burn out all the time and I didn't have these kinds of questions or frameworks to fall back on. And so now I'm trying to unlearn. I don't want to be that guy who's working. I would sleep at work often under the desk, sometimes because I was working on my the magazine I was doing it on the side or sometimes just because like, I was like, I don't know what I want to do when I go home. <laughs> yeah, I might as well yeah, just stay. And yeah. that's not healthy. You know, I was trying to avoid it. No, it's, it's a dangerous thing for for people like like us, people are people in the creative industry where your your hobby and your job are basically the yeah. same thing. Sometimes you get to a point where you're like, why would I stop? You know, my wife will call and she'll be like, "Are you coming home?" Well, I would, but if I come home, I'm just going to open the laptop and keep writing. So why? Well, it, what's yeah, the and it, it it could be the hobby and the job can be very similar because of the guts of people who many people who think for a living in the way that we do. You are constantly researching, constantly analyzing, constantly thinking about stuff, and often your hobbies reflect that. You know, even if it's just uh, you like to play board games or chess, for example. And so, there's probably less of a natural break compared to some other careers. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, we have to. It makes sense, and you have to find ways to give yourself space by 
uh, injecting other stuff into it. So that makes a lot of sense. What are some of the you, the techniques that you use to get that kind of, I guess, distance or get the barriers in place? Oh, well, I make plans. So I have two kids um, and I make plans to do different things with each one that are not, that not my interests. I, I make plans to do things that they're interested in. And then that gives me uh, a goal. So I, sometimes I'll go figure out what the thing is we're going to do because, you know, they'll say, oh, I'm interested in this or that. Um, and then it gives me obviously quality time with my kids, which is um, time you can't get back. So that's something that's been really you know, just stupid little projects, painting birdhouses or whatever the, whatever the idea they mm. cook up. That's quite, that can be quite meditative. And I guess you get your sense of community and your biological needs met that way. It's good. Yeah. You get something out of it. And then it, it's also, I try to do quiet activities too. Cause my son just wants to, you know, get out and do, you know, he'd go to a theme park every day if he could, but that's, <laughs> that's not really, I prefer something that involves some quiet as well. But, uh, you do yoga. I, I prefer to run, but it's the same. I think it, it achieves the same goal of flow of getting your brain tuned into something else besides, uh, the, the grind. And that, that yeah, well, it's really funny well because me. that little, the tweet that we've referenced, there's the idea of move like your life depends on it. And this has come up in some of the things I've listened to recently where, uh, I don't know where I read this, but I saw this, I saw this headline, it could have been an article that talked about, don't like end your day by tiring yourself out. Now you can take that to the extremes and that's silly, but I think I understand what that means. So that's interesting. And then there's definitely... I do believe that there's research in depression around two things. One is, you know, the way that exercise affects the brain and also the sense of achieving a goal. And so movement is, is important. I mean, we're animals. We're supposed to move. We're, we're absolutely the, the thing we're not supposed yeah, to do. Yeah. True. I mean, the, the thing we're not so supposed true. to do really is to live the way we're living now. That's probably the thing we're not supposed to be doing. But we are supposed to be moving. <laughs> and then Johan Hari was quoting some research out of Chile that moving and exercising does affect people. But actually when they exercise in nature, when they move through trees or, for example, that that's even better for them because they're getting that sense of, you know, there's a lot of research around how being in nature can affect uh, the humans as well. And so the idea of moving and exercising, but doing it in nature is getting a lot of, well, apparently some scientific backing right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed that too, if I'm outside more than I'm inside on a treadmill or something, I definitely yeah. feel that you have central park, uh, here in Fe yeah. here in Phoenix, I'm pretty selective with when I'm <laughs> spending a lot of time outside because of the, the ridiculous <laughs> heat, but, uh, same, same idea. Maybe same you could idea. So no, no, Mark, it, was a, it was just a silly, silly ahead, joke yeah. about maybe you could create some kind of indoor garden and charge people lots of money to get a real natural non-desert like experience. Yeah, there you go, like a mall or something mm. with with uh, trees inside. All right, well, this has been uh, awesome. Thank you very much for making time here. Um, people can find you on Twitter. You're at Mark Pollard, but. Um, any other places you want to send people mighty jungle dot. Yeah. I, I haven't got a lot of stuff up there yet, but yeah. At Mark Pollard on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm out there. I'm upping my output and don't forget. It's all just fun and games until Adam gets hurt. 
Yeah, we. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm taking it to the next level, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> All right, man. Right, Thank man. you again for, for being on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. All right, All right that was dude. awesome. Thank you very much.